Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Around the world, the race is on to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. So far, nearly 200 candidates are in the works, including dozens at the human trial stage. The optimistic experts tell us that a vaccine could be ready this year or early next and set for distribution by mid to late 2021. The pessimists suggest it could take longer, but few doubt that we'll be able to produce a vaccine. The question of concern, therefore, is not whether we'll develop a COVID-19 vaccine or whether it will be safe and effective. The question of concern is who will get the COVID-19 vaccine and when. My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Dr. Alan Bernstein, President and CEO of the Canada-based global research organization CIFAR and a member of Canada's COVID-19 vaccine task force. Let's start with your assessment of where the world is in its search for a COVID-19 vaccine. How are we doing so far? I think we're doing remarkably well, uh, both in terms of speed. I mean, we're going literally at lightning speed. Uh, you know, this this new virus was identified in, in January, so that's 10 months ago, roughly. Uh, and although it typically takes four to five years to develop a vaccine, we're well along this journey to having a vaccine, hopefully, uh, and it's been only 10 months. That's remarkable. Uh, and it's not been at the compromise of, uh, of safety. Uh, of course, what we don't know yet is whether these uh, vaccines are safe and are effective. We'll know that hopefully at the end of the phase three trials. Uh, but uh, it's a really remarkable thing. And I think it's largely due to uh, two or three things. One is the science has advanced so incredibly, even since SARS-1 in 2003, 17 years ago. Uh, secondly, there's been a remarkable amount of global collaboration uh, amongst the scientific, scientific community, between scientists uh, in academia and uh, scientists in industry. Uh, with government uh, uh, and internationally. So I think that's been uh, quite remarkable. And I think the third thing, which I think is important for the public to understand, is one reason this is not at, at the expense of, of safety is that typically vaccine development occurs in a linear way. We do a phase one trial, then a phase two, then a phase three. We go to the regulators and say, here's the data. Can we manufacture the vaccine now? And the regulator says yes or no, or more frequently, we'd like to see a few more, a little bit more data on such and such. Now what's happening uh, is we're doing everything in parallel. So the phase one trial is done first, but then the phase three trial starts immediately and manufacturing starts immediately, whether we know whether the vaccine is going to be safe and effective. And the regulators are starting to see the data halfway through the phase three trial so that there's a dialogue going on between the regulator and the people doing the trials, the companies. Uh, and the regulator can say, well, we've, we've seen the data. We'd like to see a little bit more on such and such. Um, and if the vaccine turns out not to be safe or effective, then all that production that was happening all the way along is, is thrown down the sink. So these are called at-risk or no regret investments that's happening. But uh, the reason we're doing it is to save time. The time is of the essence. Uh, it's actually more important than the cost of manufacturing. 
I want to pick up on the global collaborative effort angle. You know, in a piece you wrote for the Atlantic, you noted that you were optimistic we would get this this safe and effective vaccine soon. And one of the reasons you cite was the, and I'm quoting, the unprecedented global cooperation among scientists, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Uh, and you mentioned biopharmaceutical companies, governments, philanthropic funders, and regulators. Uh, I almost note, and I might be, it might be. I might be inaccurate here, but I almost know it a little bit of surprise there because I was certainly surprised. If you had said to me in March, we're going to have this grand cooperation across states and you know companies and funders and so on, I would have been skeptical. And yet we seem to be seeing this. Uh, you know, where, where did it come from? Because historically speaking, we've seen a lot more sort of competition than cooperation in many instances. I mean, what was it about this moment that, that drove the cooperation? I think it's a number of things. One, of course, is the seriousness of this pandemic. It's hard to justify being competitive at the expense of uh, helping to speed up the development of a vaccine, given the, 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 the sort of havoc and the deaths and the illness that, uh, that SARS-CoV-2 is, uh, is causing. I think the second thing is uh, it's just the way science is done these days. There's increasingly a move towards open science towards global collaboration. And of course the web has made all that possible. Uh, and so I think we're seeing just a convergence of a number of things. That Atlantic article, it was not an accident that I led that article with a story about how uh, a really a, a de facto collaboration between Chinese scientists and American scientists. Because hmm. the Chinese put the sequence of that virus on the web in the first or early second week of January of this year, right after they developed, found the sequence, isolated the virus and sequenced it. That sequence was then used by Moderna in Boston to immediately have uh, the complete genome synthesized. And uh, within weeks, they had approval from the FDA to start the phase one human trial. So to me, uh, given the relations between China and the United States, and certainly between China and my country, Canada, uh, that exemplified right from the very, very beginning, uh, that kind of collaboration uh, that's, been, that's characterized this whole journey. Uh, I think the third thing is, you know, companies historically have not been keen on making vaccines. It's, it's not a moneymaker. Uh, you know, pandemics, you don't know when the next pandemic is going to come along. Uh, it's not uh, everyday sort of thing. Uh, and so a lot of the vaccine development that's going on is going on through the use of public funds. Hmm. Uh, you know, warp speed in the United States. Uh, here in Canada, uh, there's been a, a, a number of investments, uh, advanced purchase agreements, so-called, uh, in uh, six different vaccines. And that's to allow the companies to do the trials and to make the vaccines. And so given the, the, the heavy investments by the public through taxes uh, in vaccine development, it's hard to argue uh, for a competitive sort of atmosphere around this. Now, there's a race going on. We all, you know, every company wants and should want their vaccine to be uh, approved first. I think that's a sort of a healthy competition, but there's also a collaboration as well. So I think, I think there, there is a really, um, one hopes that one of the lasting effects of this pandemic and the whole vaccine journey will be a sense that, gee, we're, we're better off if we collaborate 
and compete instead of um, just compete. Well, it seems to me that, 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 I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, the, the competition point being important because presumably we want to place a lot of bets, so to speak, right? I mean, you want to be able to sort of maximize the, the number of, of, of attempts to develop this and, you know, a handful of companies can't do this. I mean, as you mentioned, the Atlantic piece, there's what, something like 100 uh, underway, right? It's which presumably you'd want to do because it maximizes your chance of, of finding one that works. But that seems also contingent on the idea that states are underwriting some of these ende- endeavors by funding them or paying for, or, or being willing to pay for them at least. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so it's a very different atmosphere now uh, in the field. Uh, you know, company, there's new companies. Moderna is a relatively young company. Novavax is a young company. The 100 that you mentioned is now probably up to 180 uh, different vaccine trials going on worldwide. Uh, and there's about 40 that have entered into trials already. So this is a very crowded field uh, of new and old companies uh, in this area. So um, I think we're seeing a sea change. Um, and, and, of course, the public is watching so closely the progress of each of these vaccine trials. It's unheard of, and I think it's very healthy. It really shows a kind of engagement of the, of the, of the public, certainly in the industrialized world, in what's going on here. Uh, so every company is under the microscope. We all knew when AstraZeneca, when there was one adverse event in the AstraZeneca trial, uh, and we knew that it was on, you know, the trial was put on hold for a few days in the UK. It's, I think it's still on hold in the US. Um, uh, again, unheard of that the public, this is, you know, front page news when a vaccine is being developed. And I think it speaks to, of course, the, the impact of this uh, pandemic on, on the world. Uh, and so I, I think the, for the first time in a long time, science and the importance of science and global collaboration in science is front page news. Uh, I want to I want to move on to to production and in, in a minute distribution. And you meant that the, you mentioned there's a sort of parallel development going on, but focusing on on production for a moment. When a successful candidate's found, how's production going to proceed? I mean, say you know we go day one from okay, this is ready to go. What does day two look like in subsequent days? Well, as I said earlier, the, the, a lot of these vaccines are now are now being produced even before we know whether the phase three, three trial will show whether they're safe and effective. Uh, that would, that's to save time. Um, uh, but production um, and distribution, that's a key issue as well, particularly in the developing world, is going to be a big issue. So if one agrees that everybody in the world should be vaccinated, ideally, you know, all seven to eight billion of us, and we might need two shots, uh, so we're talking upwards of, you know, over 10 billion shots of vaccine, unprecedented. And, and literally, we don't have enough vials, the, the sort of a trivial thing on one level. Uh, we don't have enough vials or caps for those vials or needles to stick into those caps, to, you know, to deliver the vaccine to, at the moment, to vaccinate everybody. So the, the production and the distribution of these vaccines is going to be a kind of a, a warlike effort. It's an all-hands-on-deck effort. And I, I think countries are just getting their heads around that now. And one hopes that by the time we know whether any one of these vaccines 
is safe and effective, the, the, the global supply chains will be in place to make sure that they can be distributed as soon as possible. Uh, and that's particularly problematic, actually, with the RNA vaccines, the ones that, you know, um, Moderna is making uh, testing at the moment, and ditto Pfizer-BioNTech, amongst other companies, uh, because those vaccines require a, a cold chain. They have to be kept somewhere between minus 40 and minus 70 degrees centigrade. Even in the industrialized world, that's a big challenge. Uh, and uh, whether it can even be contemplated in the lower, you know, so lower income countries, the non-industrialized world, um, is a big question. Uh, and so again, there's a lot of research going on to see whether one can't lyophilize the vaccine so it could be distributed at room temperature and then reconstituted in the country that it's going to be used in. So lots of distribution issues to be dealt with before we really... So there's both production challenges that you referenced, but there's also distribution challenges. Yeah, I want to I want to dig into distribution a bit more because that's sort of the heart of this episode, and I think a heart of the the heart of the concern about inequitable and just distribution and of uh, of vaccines and ultimately the you know ending of the pandemic, because you know presumably this thing ends once everyone has been this pandemic once everyone has been vaccinated, right? I mean, we you know I I can I have this concern that we're going to be declaring victory on this well before everyone has been vaccinated. I mean, and if the question of, okay, who's left out, I think we know who the answer, what the answer to that is. And so, you know, what, what do the efforts look like to try to ensure an equitable distribution of the vaccine? I mean, who's, you know, presumably the states are concerned about this and are cooperating to some extent to, to try to make sure that it's the entire world that gets vaccinated, not just the, the wealthy states. Yeah, so it's a great and important question, actually, David. So, you know, there are sort of competing values here. On the one hand, we know, as you just said, that this pandemic will not be over until everyone's vaccinated. If, if, the, if the virus is anywhere, it's everywhere. Uh, and to, we, only, we know that from the simple fact that it started from one individual being infected in Wuhan. And, and, and it spread like wildflower fire around the world. So uh, we have to eradicate this virus everywhere. That's, that's a given. And, and that's on the one hand. On the other hand, of course, governments are elected by their citizens to um, serve their citizens. Uh, and so there's kind of a built-in uh, vaccine preference or nationalism, as it's been called, by uh, uh, representative governments. Um, and so there is this uh, tension uh, between looking after one's own and looking after the world, even though intellectually, scientifically, we know that we need to put out this fire everywhere, otherwise it'll just erupt again. Uh, and so I think that I think one of the great things that's happened uh, has, has been the creation through the WHO, uh, through uh, GAVI, the Global AIDS Vaccine, uh, the vaccine initiative um, uh, and uh, organizations like the Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust of the creation of a facility, a financing facility called COVAX. And COVAX uh, is really uh, uh, meant to do two things. One is, or three things, one is to help fund the R&D 
around the world necessary to develop a safe and effective vaccine in a collective way and provide uh, sort of this advanced market commitment to distributing the vaccine in the countries that can't afford to buy it. And third, uh, even for countries like Canada or the United States to provide vaccine for those countries as well. Um, and so COVAX has, uh, has so far identified, I believe it's nine different vaccine candidates that it's uh, betting on in its portfolio. Uh, so here in Canada, uh, the vaccine task force that I on, that I sit on has recommended six. So by buying into the COVAX facility, Canada, for example, will have um, the option to to buy not just the six that we've done on our own in bilateral deals, but also have access to the nine uh, that COVAX is is uh, investing in. Now, of course, there's some overlap between the one the our portfolio here in Canada, the bilateral portfolio and the multilateral portfolio in COVAX. So, and there are a lot of countries that have contributed uh, to COVAX, to the COVAX facility. Um, and, the, and there are a lot of countries that have signed on as beneficiaries, potentially, of the COVAX facility. Uh, I think the total is well over 100 countries now on both sides of that equation. So I, I don't view it as an either-or decision between this tension between looking after one's own country and contributing to a multilateral initiative. Um, rich countries can do both, and rich countries mm. should do both. Uh, and, and many rich countries are. Uh, there were three that are standouts and have not. Um, Russia is one. China was one. China apparently just signed on as of yesterday, I believe, to the COVAX facility, and I don't know the numbers. Uh, and the United States is still a holdout. Uh, because of the WHO involvement, so um, so I think there is um, a very imaginative uh, approach to this multilateral issue. And like I said, what what a country, a rich country, gets from putting money into it are two things. One is it's contributing to uh, uh, its own self-interested way, really, to make sure that their vaccine is available to the whole world. And secondly, it's getting access to a, a broad portfolio of vaccines if it chooses to, to get them at a very competitive price, actually. So I want to pick up on one of the points you made, which is rich countries can afford to do this. I mean, the, you know, the old canard that continues to be taught, I think, erroneously, that, you know, we, that the world is constrained by scarcity. I mean, to some extent, that's true. But our problem isn't scarcity so much as it is the distribution of abundance. And, mm. you know, you pick up on the sort of self-interested uh, point. So there's a self-interest of states to do this, but there's also, you know, self-interest presumably in making sure the entire world is vaccinated, as you note as well. And then, then of course, there's the argument that it's the right, just thing to do. Uh, so I want, and I think that's what Canada ought to do. And, and it, it's sort of morally imperative that we do so as well as in our own self-interest. But what does that look like specifically? So is it that, you know, Canada buys these doses and then pays for them to be distributed? Is it that they sort of fund countries, lesser developed countries that themselves get to then set up a system for distribution? I mean, what does the Canadian involvement look like, you know, from, from purchase to, to inoculation? Yeah. So we, we have contributed two pots of money. There are equal amounts roughly. So uh, around 220 million 
is going to go towards uh, to COVAX, giving ca Canada access to the portfolio of vaccines that COVAX has uh, is developing or is buying into. And we can decide whether which ones, if any, we want in that portfolio based on the results, of course, of the trials. But we've also contributed another $220 million, which will be going towards uh, a larger pool. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I don't know the number these days because it keeps going up, but the goal is $2 billion uh, or more uh, to provide an advanced market commitment. That is to create a market so companies know that if they make this vaccine in the billions uh, of, of shots, there actually will be a purchaser. There will be money coming from the COVAX facility to buy those vaccines. And our 220 million that's going into that pot, that pool, will then be used to buy vaccines for countries that cannot afford to buy it on their own, countries in, by and large, the developing world. So that's... that's uh, in brief, how, how we're, what our contributions are. Of course, there's another way that uh, we can contribute and probably, hopefully, will end up contributing, which is we, we, as well as other countries, the UK in particular, have bought way more vaccines than we, we will need, assuming all the vaccines that we have in our portfolio now turn out to be safe and effective. So if that's true, we will have access to our own requirements in Canada and ditto in the UK and certainly ditto in the US. Uh, and so um, I, this has not been announced, but I hope what the government will announce, and I don't know why they wouldn't, is that we would donate those excess shots of vaccine uh, in some by some mechanism to the, either through COVAX or th through bilateral agreements to countries that can't afford to buy it on their own. Right. And then do we then play a role in the in the distribution of the vaccine as well? You know, because you mentioned the sort of the challenges, for instance, of keeping it refrigerated if you need to keep it refrigerated, but also presumably there's just sort of basic challenges of of shipping and then distributing it on the ground. Or is that something that's done in the countries themselves or through international organizations? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would imagine that there's not one answer to that. I think it will depend on the country and the, and the situation in that country. Uh, but what I would say, of course, is there, it would be, make no sense for us to distribute or to, to gift um, you know, 10 million shots of a vaccine to a particular country if we don't think they actually can handle the distribution on their own. Right. Uh, and so we, we should contribute some funding and perhaps personnel to help with that distribution. And of course, this is not the first time, you know, the, the uh, Gavi is really responsible and we contribute to Gavi as a country, uh, is responsible for buying and, and distributing vaccines, let's say the polio vaccine, for example, or measles vaccine. Uh, Sorry, the, Gavi is a global vaccine initiative? Is it? That's right. So it, okay. it, it is the organization that, based in Geneva, that's responsible for um, receives funding from the industrialized world, uh, use that, uses that funding to buy vaccines, existing vaccines, and distributes them to countries that need it uh, to immunize largely their children. Uh, so uh, it might be that Gavi would, would take on that responsibility or that we would, we being Canada, in a bilateral way with a country or region of, of interest. 
Ah, okay. Now, you you mentioned something that I hadn't actually really thought about, which is multiple vaccines. I mean, uh, so just to take us back for a minute, are we looking to find the holy grail or is this a case where we actually might end up with a couple of vaccines that work? Yeah, it's a great question. So let's imagine more than one vaccine works, which I think is a hopefully a likely scenario. <laughs> uh, uh, then the next question is going to be, who gets which vaccine? Um, and so just to take two examples, um, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is developed at Oxford University, is a recombinant adenovirus vector-based vaccine. It's, a, it's based on another virus that acts as kind of a missile to deliver the vaccine. Uh, it's using a chimp, chimpanzee adenovirus vector. Um, there's not been a lot of vaccines made with that technology yet, nor has there been any vaccines made with the RNA technology. On the other hand, the third platform that, that we're all betting on is a protein subunit vaccine. And a lot of vaccines have been built on that technology, so on that platform. So there are some platforms that are less risky and, and, then, and others that are more risky, not intrinsically as far as we know, but simply because we don't have as much experience yet with them or we have no experience with them. Uh, and so the, the trials are largely being done uh, with individuals, with volunteers, of course, between the ages of 20 to 50, let's say. Uh, and there are no trials that I'm aware of at the moment that are, involve pregnant women or children. Uh, and so there is going to be a question of whether pregnant women should be immunized with a vaccine once we get it. And if so, which is the one that's the least risky? to immunize women with, and ditto children. The same question will be for children. Same question actually for seniors. Seniors get a different um, flu vaccine every year or should get a different flu vaccine uh, every year than uh, people who are not seniors. They're, they induce a more robust immune response, and seniors' immune responses tend to fall off with age. So different vaccines will fit with different demographics, will be better for different demographics. Uh, and, and again, uh, I think there needs to be a lot of discussion still, uh, not just in Canada, but worldwide, about exactly the best fits if more than one vaccine is safe and effective. So we, we could end up in a situation where you, you go into the drugstore or your clinic or wherever you're getting this vaccine center, and there are, are a couple of different vaccines on the shelf, and they sort of customize what you get yeah there'll be i think three broad parameters one would be the risk group that you're in are you a 20 to 50 year old are you a senior are you a pregnant mom are you a you know a child uh that's one thing and then try to marry that with let's imagine we have vaccines in the three different common platforms science platforms that are being used to develop these vaccines and marry them as a best fit with which platform is is the best for you and then the third, actually, is what we talked about already, which is the sort of supply chain. So it is going to be certainly easier to deliver vaccines that need to be kept at minus 70 to large urban centers, let's say in Canada, than it will be to deliver that same vaccine to a farming community. So, so there will be supply chain issues as well. And how all that plays out... Um, it's complicated, of course, um, 
and uh, yet to be worked out. And I'm sure there are people thinking about this. It's not been addressed by the vaccine task force here in Canada, but um, it is a, it is, it will, I'll put it positively. It hopefully will be a big problem. Right, right, right. It's the sort of problem you want to have. You yeah, want to have. Exactly. <laughs> but, but it sounds to me like there's a potential other layer of, of at least potential inequity there insofar as not only do we need to get doses of the vaccine for the for every country in the world, we need to get doses of each of the right vaccines for every country in the world. It's not enough just to say, okay, here's here's the vaccine. It's, it's going to have to be here's the sufficient number of doses of each of the of the vaccines that will be necessary for the different groups you discussed. That's right. And, and there's also different differences in costs of making these vaccines and ease of making these vaccines depending on the science platform. So yeah, there's a whole lot of uh, whole lot of variables and that's as you said an issue between countries but it's also an issue even within countries as I alluded to in terms of rural versus urban. And are we just assuming that these doses are going to be globally wherever they're available uh, free? To, to, uh, to individuals? I'm pretty sure that'll be free in Canada and, and probably in, in many countries in the industrialized world. Um, uh, and I think they'll have to be free in low and middle income countries simply because there's no, they, they can't, individuals can't afford it. And hence COVAX, the COVAX facility. Um, uh, and, and certainly in Canada, and, uh, and that's true in the UK, in the US, uh, and EU. Certainly, in those in those countries and regions, governments have been buying the or assigning these advanced purchase agreements, so that the funding is already being made through through public funds. So, implying that that uh, they'll be free. And again, there's um, taking these vaccines is not only you know vaccines are interesting. They not only benefit the individual who takes the vaccine, but they are the only medicine on the shelf. That also benefits society because it it stops you hopefully from being a spreader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, since society benefits if if I take a vaccine, uh, maybe society should pay for me to take that vaccine. I think that's you know there's so there's a practical as well as an altruistic argument for all of us paying collectively for these vaccines. Yeah, and it seems you know one of the things that I found encouraging. And, in, and quite frankly, a little bit surprising about the, the vaccine effort globally, you know, a few cases notwithstanding U.S. state and for instance, is that it, it does seem to be one of the moments where we recognize that there are things, crises, challenges that we need to pull together on and that we have a collective interest as well as a self-interest in cooperating and letting the state do what sometimes the state needs to do, which is, for instance, pre-purchasing vaccine doses that allows companies to take risks that they might not otherwise take. Uh, you know, I think of climate change, for instance, and what where we sort of fall down on climate change, we seem to be perhaps succeeding here. I mean, do you think that this is, is it just the utter shock and widespread nature of this pandemic and the fact that it's disrupted business that has driven us together on this? I think it's the, it's the rapid nature of the onset of this uh, pandemic and its impact, immediate impact on, on health, our health and the economy that's 
that are driving just what you said, this coming together nationally and internationally. But uh, again, as you said, one hopes that one of the lasting and positive benefits of this pandemic is that all of us will have learned that it's actually better to tackle global challenges globally than them individually. So climate change is the is the best example. No one country can solve the climate change problem. That's obvious. Uh, we all need to be working together and working together in lots of different ways, from from the science to policy development to uh, you know reinsulating houses and you know buildings. So I, I think it's a great example where hopefully we'll come out of this pandemic with a different view about our own country's place in the world and how we tackle these global challenges that we need to do it in a multilateral way. So there's a sort of ironic situation right now where there is a thickening of borders, no question about it, uh, both in terms of you know trade and other issues, but, but also in terms of we literally close borders so we don't get people coming across the Canada-US border. But at the same time, I think there is a growing awareness, and I hope there is, that we are all in this together, and that the big challenges facing the planet, whether it's climate change, uh, income inequality, uh, you know, the World Food Program just got the Nobel Prize, uh, food, water, security, uh, and lots of other you know global challenges. Antibiotic resistance is another really important one. We need to be working together on all of these, just as we are doing it with uh, COVID-19. Is this a model then? I mean, are we seeing the sort of development of, I mean, at the very least for vaccine, the sort of cooperative model, or, or is it that this model already exists and we're just scaling it up? Uh, there, there have certainly been glimmers of it before. So, you know, Gavi is a good example. We all countries contribute to Gavi in a collective way to vaccinate uh, people in the developing world. Um, and there is the you know intergovernmental uh, commi- commission on climate change. <clears throat> um, so there are some examples of that. And you know I I said to somebody the other day uh, in this uh, exactly this kind of conversation. I think the beginning of multilateralism uh, kind of started uh, in, in a big way after the Second World War, where the U- the UN was created the UN Declaration on Human Rights, uh, there was a whole lot of multilateral organizations came out of the tragedy of World War II. And so hopefully uh, this multilateral approach, which which I think is absolutely essential if we're going to tackle important global challenges, will be one of the benefits, beneficiaries of, of COVID-19. It's a, thousands or m- millions of people who have died as a result, will not have died in vain, really, that, that they will have contributed to an understanding that we need to be working together. Uh, so, yeah, let's, you know, I think, I think it's, we, we should not just cross our fingers. I think we should push to make it happen. And so I want to I close out on the question of optimism and timeline. So, you, you know, you've said that you're, you're optimistic we're going to have a successful vaccine, safe and effective and fairly soon. I mean, what, what, what are you thinking about for timelines? 
for both the, the sort of discovery of the of safe and effective vaccines, but also their distribution. So, so before I get to the timelines, I am still cautiously optimistic. Uh, you know, months after I wrote the piece in the Atlantic as, that you referred to, um, and I am optimistic not just because I am naturally optimistic. I think if you're a scientist, you have to be an optimist. Science is so hard, uh, but I am optimistic because of the data. Uh, and the data says that no matter what platform is being used, whether it's a protein subunit, whether it's an RNA vaccine or recombinant adenovirus vector vaccine, all the vaccine in the phase one, at the phase one trial level at least, is showing two things, which is very encouraging. One is that they seem to be safe uh, at a small number, admittedly, uh, and they seem to be able to elicit high levels of neutralizing antibody against the virus, independent of which platform, as I've said. So that's my reason for optimism. Um, and I'm awaiting eagerly and anxiously for the results of the phase three trials. And I think we will start to see some of those results. And that the timing of that simply depends on how quickly uh, volunteers are accrued into those trials. Because those trials need to accrue of the order of 50 to 60,000 people before there's statistical sort of solidity uh, on any conclusion one one might want to make, um, and so um, I think the projections I've seen and, and uh, heard and talked to people about are somewhere depending on which vaccine we're talking about, somewhere in the November to January window for the first vaccine results coming off at the phase three trials. Now that doesn't mean we'll all get a, be vaccinated the next day. Okay. Uh, several other things have to happen. One is the most important is that the statisticians have to get to work to really look closely at that data um, uh, in, in the companies, but also the statisticians at the regulators. So in Canada, it's Health Canada. In the US, it's the FDA. In Europe, it's the EMA. Uh, and so the regulators have to now look very closely at that data. Uh, and, and, and then decide one of three things. Uh, one would be, nope, the vaccine is neither safe or effective, or it's one or the other, but either way, it's, it's a, it's a no-go. The other extreme would be, yes, it looks like it is safe and effective. Uh, you, can, you can get a, uh, uh, a license to, to distribute the vaccine to immunize people. And the, the middle one would be, and this is in one sense the most likely, would be we'd like to see a little bit more data on uh, let's say a pediatric or pregnant mums before we will give a license that you can vaccinate pregnant mums. Uh, so um, how long the regulators will take will vary of course from country to country, but I don't think it'll take too long because they've been seeing the data on an ongoing basis in some cases. So, um, and then once that hurdle is passed, assuming it's positive that the vaccine is judged to be safe and effective, uh, then there needs to be some more scale-up of production, because not all the vaccine will have been made, and there needs to be distribution of the vaccine uh, to the local level, and that's also going to take some time. And of course, before that, I think there needs to be some discussion and agreement about who gets the vaccines first. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I think most people would agree that frontline healthcare workers and frontline workers generally should be amongst the first. But of course, not all frontline healthcare workers are equal. 
So somebody working in an ICU uh, obviously is at the most highest risk. Uh, somebody who's, um, uh, you know, an optometrist is at a much lower risk, let's say. So uh, there needs to be some uh, discussion and agreement on that in different countries. Uh, and then we go down from, from there. But um, uh, so I think there's a lot of steps in between, but and some of that will take time, some won't, because a lot, a lot of those discussions about who gets a first, second, third could be happening now, and in some cases is happening now. Right. So, which I think makes good sense. I mean, I, I think, I mean, of course, there's always going to be protests and pushback, but I, I do think you're right. I mean, that we'll see generally, general broad support for saying, look, there is an order to this, given the sort of limits of what we can do at once that, you know, frontline healthcare workers, uh, those who are more at risk, of course, exactly. after that, and, and so on down the line. Exactly. Um, yeah. I'm certainly willing to be patient. Um, <laughs> seven well, months well in, also, I, you know. the more, more people, as more and more people get vaccinated, and of course, you know, we'll need a, a, a pecking order of who gets vaccinated first, second, and third anyways, because the system is just not robust enough to vaccinate all of us at the same time. Right. That would be unprecedented. We just don't have enough uh, uh, capacity to do that. So, you know, front frontline healthcare workers, as you said, um, individuals with pre-existing conditions and, and or seniors, I think most people would agree would be second or third. Uh, and then we go down from there. But as we, the more people we vaccinate, as we vaccinate more and more people, um, that are not number, the transmission number that, is sort of a measure of how easily the virus can spread from individual to individual uh, should start to go down because vaccines, in addition to washing our hands, wearing a mask, keeping our distance, becomes an important but not a standalone arrow in the quiver, right? Um, so we should start to see a beating down of this virus and the pandemic once the vaccine starts to get vaccinated, people start to get vaccinated. But I think it is important to emphasize it's not likely to be a standalone solution uh, because the vaccines are, are rarely 100% effective and not everyone's going to take the vaccine. Right? There'll be some people who are vaccine hesitant, people who for one reason or another can't take the vaccine, uh, some anti-vaxxers. Uh, and so I think we, we can expect that at least for a while we're going to have to keep doing what we should be doing now. Well, that that is uh, an optimistic enough note on which to end. I think. <laughs> that, that, I, I think all in all, it's been an optimistic conversation, and and that, that brings us to time. But I want to first thank you very much for joining me, but especially uh, for the work that you do, which I certainly appreciate, and and I I can only imagine millions of others in Canada appreciate as well. So thanks very much for for joining me and for your work. Thank you, David, for this opportunity to talk about it. And, and thanks, as always, to uh, Mira Ahmad, Luke Gilmore, and Aaron Reynolds, who make this show possible and who make me sound much smarter, more competent, and high-quality audio than I am in real life. So thank you very much to those three uh, for, the, for their support of the show. And as always, uh, to the listeners, thanks so much for joining in. And as always, remember, wash your hands, wear a mask, physically distance when you can and hold tight because we're on our way to, to getting past this. So thanks again so much. And we'll talk to you again soon. 